I've listened to Elvis Presley's self-titled debut album for months. And I listened to it once yesterday. Welcome to Spin It. everybody and welcome back to spin it the record ranking podcast for people who would rather be listening to music i'm james and with me as always is connor oh (laughs) yeah that's connor just sounding like he normally does all the time as as always hey there pretty mama yep is that what we're doing (laughs) thank you for the compliment i suppose i'm flattered yeah this week we're, we're doing something a little different but the same as every week because that's what we do but this week we're talking about the king of rock and roll, Elvis Presley. We are. It's exciting. Yes, it is very exciting. I know you're excited for this episode. We geared up for it by actually having a spin it movie night. Both of us, we, we watched the Elvis movie that came out this past summer together just yesterday in preparation. Me for the second time. I saw it when it first came out like a true fan. Yeah, well, I saw it last night. And I watched it once <laughs> yesterday. <laughs> yeah, watched, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. That's pretty much, if we did a movie podcast, exactly how it would shake out. Yeah. But we're not doing a movie podcast, although we probably have enough material on Elvis to also do an Elvis movie podcast because he got around as an actor. Yep. But we're talking about his music today. If you've been paying attention, you'll know he's already been in the spin cycle a couple of times lately, like quite a few. Andrew Lloyd Webber wrote the last song he'd ever record. We talked about that. Just the other week, we talked about how Willie Nelson wrote the last song he'd ever play on his piano. And we talked about him on the Johnny Cash episode, too, as he was a part of the Million Dollar Quartet. And I'm positive he's come up a few times outside of that. But those are the three that I can remember off the top of my head. Yeah, he has come up a lot. I know, especially lately. We've been preparing you for this episode subliminally for a long time. There's another similarity to an old favorite episode of mine that we'll get to later. Oh, I don't quite know what you're talking about. I know you don't. Okay, I'm curious. I guess we'll wait and find out. But uh, this is another episode that's probably noteworthy to mention. Elvis is another artist who started his biggest work, or his earliest work, before the album era of music was in full swing. So he's put out plenty of LPs, but a lot of his earlier stuff especially is definitely built to be collections of singles. And he's got plenty of singles that actually never saw an album release at all that only existed as singles. Mm -hmm. Or, I mean, until they got put on greatest hits and compilation albums. So that's kind of the context for what this record is, a collection of songs meant to be singles. So you know a lot about Elvis' history. You watched the movie. You have been a fan of the guy for a long time. Yeah. Yep, yep. So I guess let's see how much of this you know. Uh, Probably most of it. (laughs) Probably most of it, yes. But hey, you in the audience, you maybe didn't know. So sit, sit back, buckle in, and maybe you'll learn something. Elvis Aaron Presley was born in 1935. Uh, yes, another 1930s born artist like we've had a couple of lately. Remember Willie Nelson and Nina Simone were born in the same year, 1933. But it's interesting because from those artists, we've pulled music for three different decades now. Elvis coming out in the 50s, Nina Simone in the 60s, and Willie Nelson's redheaded stranger from the 70s. So I don't know. I just thought that was interesting. Good contrast. Yeah. Elvis was born in a little two-room house in Tupelo, Mississippi. And I didn't know this before I started looking for the episode notes, but Elvis was a twin, kinda. Yeah. 
Yes. His brother was stillborn. Which is, yeah. Which is sad, but surprising. His family wasn't always the most well-off. His father was hopping from job to job and actually spent time in jail for check fraud, actually. But as Elvis was growing up, he attended a Pentecostal church that helped lay the gospel-inspired foundations of a lot of his musical tastes. The hymns and the songs that they would sing really left a pretty lasting, strong impression on him. And eventually, he would go on to release a lot of those gospel songs throughout his career. They were some of his favorites and some of what he's become most remembered for. Some. Obviously, there's a lot more. Elvis's first public performance came in the form of a State Fair talent show when he was 10 years old. He was so small, he couldn't even reach the microphone, so he had to stand on a chair, and he did okay. He placed fifth in the contest, and, I mean, I had to wonder what it must be like to be one of the people that beat Elvis <laughs> in this beat contest. To have the lifelong <laughs> bragging rights to say you placed, you know, three, four, two places above the king of rock and roll. That'd be pretty wild. I bet you I could beat him. You think you could beat Elvis? T- you think you could beat 10-year-old Elvis in a talent show? Yeah. Actually, probably not. <laughs> you think? He's only 10. I don't think I could. You have an uh. extra, like, 15 years of experience on him. Yeah, not enough. Not enough. I don't even know, know what I'd do. You could do magic. Yeah. I lost to a 10-year-old doing magic once in a talent show, so I'm not ready to relive that. Oh, well, that is sad. Maybe Elvis would take you to the curb. Actually, I don't really know how old they were, but they were a small child. Oh, maybe it was Elvis. On Elvis's 11th birthday, he got his first guitar and started getting lessons from his uncles and from his pastor. His playing actually started to improve a lot, but he was really, really shy, ironically, about singing in public. He got a lot of stage fright and stuff, and he was a bit of a lone wolf during his school days. Yeah, just like that. I heard Elvis in the distance. He would bring his guitar to school and sing all kinds of covers of country songs, which led to kids teasing him about being a trashy hillbilly. Which, I mean, settle down, Tupelo, Mississippi, okay? Yeah. (laughs) Uh, One of his classmates was actually the younger brother of a radio host called Mississippi Slim, and he took Elvis under his wing and kind of landed him a few different gigs on the air. The first time Elvis was set to perform on the radio, he actually backed out altogether. He decided in the heat of the moment that he couldn't go on with it, but soon enough he found the nerve to actually put on a show. And at that point, his family decided to make the move to Memphis, Tennessee, which was the place Elvis would call home for the rest of his life. He started high school, and after getting a C in music class, he told his teacher that she just didn't appreciate his kind of singing. And she pretty much just said, you're right, I don't. That's a C for you. So that can't be good for the self-confidence. No, probably not. I wouldn't be for me. No, but C's get degrees, you know? D's get degrees in some places. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) But in high school, he starts to grow into himself, kind of find his own style, And it really didn't take long for him to come up with his now signature look. The hair slicked back, flashy clothes that he actually started to purchase from the famous Lansky brothers who outfitted superstars like Roy Orbison and Isaac Hayes. The Lansky brothers are actually a really significant piece of Elvis lore and history. And honestly, just Memphis history in general. They had their shop right on Beale Street for a long time. Guy Lansky once said, I put Elvis in his first suit and I put him in his last. Pretty much this is what Elvis wore his whole life. But speaking of Beale Street, that's where Elvis starts to spend a lot of his free time. Beale Street is kind of Memphis's main drag and a little bit of a hub for the local blues music scene. And he starts to open up more about playing and singing in public as he's down there, you know, amongst the people playing and singing. And that actually started to turn the tide for him socially. He started to get a little more popular in school and all that. A little less lone wolf. 
And despite his growing skill as a musician and a guitarist, he never did learn how to read music. He would sit around jukeboxes and watch people to learn how to play. And he picked up all kinds of different hits from artists like Jimmy Rogers, Roy Acuff, Ernest Tubb, Bob Wills, and more. So he starts to add country into the mix of gospel and blues influences that are looming large in his life at this point. And also incredibly significant, Elvis is also picking up a ton of music from black artists of his day. He's listening to a ton of radio stations that are playing artists like Sister Rosetta Tharp, B.B. King, Rufus Thomas, and more. And actually, he met B.B. King while he was spending time on Beale Street. B.B. Yep. King also frequented the district. So, bottom line, he's pulling in a lot of influences from a lot of places. In 1953, fresh out of high school, Elvis starts working with Sam Phillips, future founder of Sun Records, who we've mentioned a couple times on this podcast before, once again in the Johnny Cash episode. Sure have. And a few other places, I think. He starts working with Sam Phillips to record a little self-made single. He says he just wanted to hear what he sounded like or make a gift for his mother. He didn't really consider it to be too serious. He was just kind of messing around with the idea of recording himself. But legend has it that when the receptionist was getting him set and ready for the recording, she asked him who he sounded like when he sang. And what he told her was, I don't sound like nobody. And boy, did they figure that out fast. Yeah. As soon as he finished the recording, he walked out and Sam Phillips went, uh, okay, who was that? And so began Elvis's tenure as Sun Records' breakout artist, the real hit maker. Uh, but the path, you know, wasn't always smooth and wasn't clear. He tried working with other vocal quartets and fronting for other bands. And time and again, people said that he just couldn't sing. They said he didn't have an ear for harmony, that he should stick to driving a truck instead of pursuing music. They just really could not get into his style of singing. It was unique. Yeah. It was something you had to get used to. It wasn't traditional. Definitely not. And it's hard to put yourself in the shoes of someone who's listening to Elvis sing like nobody has ever sang and having to figure out, is this the kind of guy I want in my vocal quartet or leading my band? Like, will we be able to sell records to people Mm -hmm. with something so unconventional? It's probably a tough thing to figure out. But Sam Phillips has a plan. He's trying to find a way to bring African-American music to a white audience without using African-American singers. It's definitely a plan that's a little ridiculous today, but back in 1954, that was kind of the way he had to do it. I mean, to be fair, it's the only way he was going to make it work. (laughs) It's true, yeah. For the times, unfortunately, the only way you were going to bring that music to a white audience was with a white singer. Yeah, which is kind of ridiculous to think about. But Sam Phillips knew. He he knew the songs were great. He just didn't have a vehicle to deliver them that people would respond to. Until Elvis. He knows that this guy's got a background and a knowledge of black music and R&B and all kinds of styles of music. And he knows that Elvis has a voice that can really help carry the energy and the style and the sound that he's looking for. So he calls Elvis into the studio, along with guitarist Scotty Moore, and upright bassist Bill Black, and they recorded a bunch of covers. Arthur Crudup's That's Alright especially was one that caught Phillips' ear, and he locked in. He said, this is it. This is my ticket. So he sent that record off to a radio show, and it was an overnight success. They had so many people asking about it, they played it several times in less than two hours. They just had it on constantly that first couple days. So Elvis and the band start gigging around Memphis, and when he starts playing live, people start to see that he behaves different on stage, too. He doesn't just sing different, he is different. He 
starts doing his infamous rubber legs dancing, shaking the hips, and doing all this kinds of stuff that just really wasn't done at the time. Yep. Pretty controversial wiggling. And they wanted to throw him in jail for it. They really didn't like it. Especially a lot of the more, I don't know, conservative, traditional, just the footloose kind of crowd, you know? Yeah. The people that would say, no dancing. Uh, They watched what he was doing, and it just was a shock. But it was a hit with enough of the right people. Soon his scope started to expand beyond Memphis. Just like Hank Williams, he performed on the Louisiana Hayride. And he was on the Grand Ole Opry once. Actually, kind of funny, after he performed on the Grand Ole Opry, they kind of pulled the plug and said, well, Elvis doesn't really suit the program, in their words. (laughs) So they didn't bring him back. It was his one and only Opry appearance. But Sun is cutting singles left and right. Elvis is putting out lots of music, but he's still finding it kind of tough to get work. There's this weird dissonance that's happening where country stations are saying he sounds too black, too rock and roll, and R&B stations aren't playing it because the country songs that he was doing were too hillbilly. So he kind of blended those two things together, and thus the subgenre of rockabilly music was born. And he also upped the number of TV appearances he was making, too, quite a bit. So all this happens between the time he leaves high school in 1953 and up to this point in 1956. Now he's ready to put out a proper LP, full-length record. So he heads to Nashville, moves his contract from Sun Records to RCA, which allegedly was because of their better distribution. They could reach an even wider audience than Sun could. And Elvis cranks out this batch of songs that include covers of tracks by Carl Perkins, Ray Charles, Little Richard, and more. We'll get into them. That's kind of the point of the show. We'll get into them. Several songs were actually repurposed Sun Records masters, while others were brand new ones created under his new label. His self-titled debut LP features the work of the classic Elvis trio, which is him, Scotty Moore, and Bill Black, but it also features contributions from drummer DJ Fontana and guitar contributions from the legendary Chet Atkins, as well as a handful of other musicians and singers. Elvis's first record was the first rock and roll album to sell a million copies and top the Billboard charts, and it's stayed in the top for 10 weeks. It was certified gold within a decade, and by 2011, uh, several decades later, it had gone platinum. And a little bit down the road, Rolling Stone actually ranked it at an incredibly high number 56 on their 500 greatest albums of all time list. Anyway, that's what you really need to know getting into this album. Elvis really takes off, explodes onto the music scene, changes the way we kind of perceive popular music and rock and roll and everything forever. You know, he's a figure of controversy and there's just a lot to him, basically. But to give you a few bullet points of the rest of his story, he started to appear on major TV programs like the Milton Berle and Ed Sullivan shows. Once again, wildly controversial. People actually rioted over his dancing. They lost it. I know. It's insane. I know. Ed Sullivan even... We've talked about Ed Sullivan on the podcast before as well. We have, yes. And we'll talk about him again. But... Ed Sullivan called Elvis, and I quote, unfit for family viewing. (laughs) He started touring far and wide, and his music was so popular that bootlegs of his records gained him a lot of international stardom. People were illegally making Elvis records and selling them internationally. In 1957, he moved into Graceland, his mansion outside of Memphis, and he was drafted into the army in 1958 at which point he spent some time in Germany and where he met his future wife, Priscilla. Sure did. Yeah, and then he started doing all the things that rock stars do. Uh, you know, he started using amphetamines, he started learning karate, etc., etc. He was a black belt. He was a black belt, yes. In the 1960s, he did a lot of film work, 
Like I mentioned, he was quite an actor in that he just was in a lot of movies. And, of course, other life highlights. He had a kid. He met Richard Nixon. He earned the first Grammy's Lifetime Achievement Award that ever went to a rock and roll musician. It was pretty impressive. By 1973, his drug use started to become a lot more frequent. He was spending less time in the studio. His marriage had ended in a divorce. His health was on the fritz. Stuff kind of started to hit the fan. And that kind of carried on until 1977, at which point he was simultaneously afflicted with a lot. High blood pressure and enlarged colon, liver problems, vision loss. He had a lot going on. His body was uh, failing on multiple fronts. <laughs> it, yes, it was. He famously passed away in the bathroom of Graceland on August 16th, 1977, at the age of 42. Yeah. Fun fact, if you go visit Graceland, the upstairs is blocked off because of that. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. They just said, you know what, he died up there, and now respect to the family and to prevent weirdos from coming and like doing weird things at the place of his death, just seal it. They sealed it off. It's like, you can't even get up there, and they literally sealed it off. I believe it, and that honestly is probably a good idea. Yeah, there was some controversy around the cause of his death. People speculated about heart attacks, drug overdoses, allergic reactions. In Men in Black, they claim he just decided to go home. Oh, is that a Men in Black spoiler? Have you not seen Men in Black? No. Really? No. Yeah, there's a funny joke. Somehow Elvis comes up in a conversation about how he died, and the one guy's like, Elvis didn't die, he just went home, which implies that Elvis was an alien. Interesting. Which is a very popular, like, fan theory. I shouldn't say popular, but you know, it's one of those weird theories that are out there about Elvis, that he was an alien. That is really strange, and I haven't <laughs> heard that. But alien theories aside, you know, a lot of those speculations are pretty reasonably plausible, but we don't really know. There's all the stuff with his doctor, Dr. Nick. Yeah. You skipped right over his sole manager, Colonel Tom Parker. Didn't even really talk about him. No. I Again, since we're talking about his debut album, I didn't want to spend eight years talking about the later part of his career, which you absolutely could do. Yeah, fair enough. There's so much about the man everywhere. So I figure Elvis is one that we'll look at revisiting a little farther down the line. Makes sense. And we'll talk about some of the later elements of his career, including Tom Parker and everyone else involved in his life. But yeah, um, heart trouble seems to be the prevalent professional diagnosis for his death. Yeah. Anyway, all that said, just, you know, the briefest of overviews into the early life of the king of rock and roll. Over the course of his entire career, he would put out 23 studio albums, 8 live albums, 29 EPs, 117 singles, and he appeared in 33 films. And Elvis is in 5 Halls of Fame. He's got 3 Grammys, and he has plenty of gold records and other awards. A lot of which are actually on display at Graceland. You can go see them. I've never been to Graceland, but I've been in Memphis. Added to the spin it on the road. <sighs> yeah. What do you think the drive time is from Adam Zuzu's tea house to Graceland. <laughs> okay, it would take us eight hours and 21 minutes to drive that from Madame Zuzu's to Graceland. Don't know why we'd be doing them both in one sitting, but all right. <laughs> why not? It's spinning on the road. Anyway, that's a good enough intro to Elvis and everything. Let's, uh, what do you say we get the mixtaper out here and see what he knows about the king of rock and roll that I may not? Let's do it. Hey, it's me, the mixtaper. Hello, mixtaper. Welcome back to Factor Spin and to Spin It and all the things you're coming back to. How are you this week? <laughs> I'm good. Hoping to continue my winning streak here. Don't mention it. You actually probably shouldn't mention it. Maybe you'll jinx yourself. Maybe it's bad luck. I'm sure I will. Last week I claimed I was not going to lose a single episode in 2023. And how fitting would it be if I lost the very next one? <laughs> it honestly sounds a lot like you. So maybe I should be a little more confident. Yes. But last week, man, you really put the hurt on me with pirate kidnappings and moon films. <laughs> and so I'm a little scared. 
Wonderful. Well, let's jump right into it, shall we? I see no reason to waste time. I feel like I'm caught in a trap, and I can't walk out. <laughs> All right. Before we jump into the first fact, I got to ask you a question. Uh, okay. In terms of this, you know, game show, if I said Michael Jackson, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Well, honestly, the zoo. <laughs> yeah, and specifically, you know, you're talking about the zoo. What what's, was, like, Michael Jackson's most famous uh, pet? Well, the first zoo animal that comes to mind that we talked about is Thriller the Tiger. However, his most famous pet was the monkey, Bubbles. Was the monkey, Bubbles. Well, it wasn't a monkey. wasn't a monkey. It was a chimp. It was a chimp. All right, same thing. No, if it doesn't have a tail, it's not a monkey. If it doesn't have a tail, it's not a monkey. It's an ape. Ah, potato, potato. No, ape, monkey. <laughs> Very different things. <laughs> Well, out of the way, Bubbles, we got a new star in town with Elvis Presley's chimpanzee. So Elvis had a chimpanzee as well? Yes, that's my fact. What was Elvis's chimp's name? Scatter. Scatter? Yeah. That's an interesting name. Yeah, you know, like, oh, the, 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 the cops are here. Scatter. Yeah, or one who creates scat or poop. That too. Chimpanzee crapper. When did he get a chimpanzee? In 1961. Okay. And why did he get a chimpanzee? Because why not? I can think of a good couple reasons why not to have a chimp. Did he buy it? Did he want it and seek it out? Was it given to him as a gift? Yeah. He wanted it. He bought it from its previous owner, Memphis TV personality, Captain Bill Kilbrew. That's a name. What's Bill Kilbrew up to with chimps? I don't know. That is information I have. Okay. Does he do... I mean, uh, Michael Jackson appeared in public a lot with Bubbles. Uh Uh-huh. Does Elvis do a lot of public stuff with this chimp? Oh, yeah. Like what? He'd bring him to the movie sets all the time when he'd be hanging out on the movie sets. Oh, oddly enough, that sounds familiar. Scatter even wore his own human, like, clothes, you know, when he was out in public. Oh, yeah. Gotta dress him up. Honestly, if I had a chimp, I'd do the same thing. And he, and he took after his owner. He really liked to drink alcohol and make a ruckus. No way. You're telling me... That's what I'm telling you. <laughs> he drank alcohol and made ruckuses? Yep. How did he get his hands on alcohol? Given to him. By Elvis? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> no way. How much? What? What? Yeah, he'd, he'd like to go. He also was a bit of a prankster. What kind of pranks was this monkey pulling? He'd like to uh, lift up women's skirts. Oh, gosh. That's not quite a prank. <laughs> yeah, you know, they, they'd be over at Graceland playing pool or whatever, and the chimpanzee would just come up and check out what was going on under there. Weird and awful. Yeah. I don't like it. I don't like it. I don't like it either. I don't like how familiar this sounds. Darn you. Is there anything else I need to know? Oh, we haven't even gotten to the best part yet. Yeah? Okay, what's the best part? Ask me what happened to Scatter. What happened to Scatter? I'm afraid of what you're going to say. <laughs> Well, we need to get the spinning mystery department no. out here to determine that one. No. <laughs> because there's a lot of allegations going around about what happened to Scatter. Allegations? Yeah. Scatter, unfortunately, became a bit of a handful, you know, doing things he shouldn't and all that. And so had to be confined to his own, literally, like, almost like had a room built for him in Graceland that was like temperature Stop. controlled and everything like that Stop. for him to live in. Stop. Okay. <laughs> what you're telling me is, is a literal retelling of the monkey's black box fact. What are you talking about? When the monkeys were misbehaving and riled up, they, <laughs> they, they put in a big black box on set. It's the same fact, but with a real monkey. <laughs> yes. That's what I'm telling you. <laughs> 
So he had to be. He had to live out the rest of his days in that room, and it really made Scatter angry because he lost so much freedom. Yeah, that would be a little hard to swallow. He became aggressive one time when like a maid was trying to feed him. He like ripped her wig off. Aggressive is the last adjective I want my chimps to embody. Mm-hmm. But there's a couple. I, I found a couple different articles out there about what happened to Scatter. What are the prevalent theories? So uh, some stories say that Scatter died of cirrhosis of the liver, which would make sense with all the drinking. Yeah, it would. I would guess monkeys have a lower tolerance than humans. Yeah. Apes. Darn it. (laughs) But others say that the servants got tired of Scatter's bad behavior and him attacking them all the time and poisoned him. That's pretty serious. Yeah, that uh, a maid poisoned him out of retaliation for him biting her. So how old was Scatter when he died? I don't know. I thought I had that information. Oh. But he did die after the poisoning. Alleged poisoning. Yes, alleged poisoning. And is also allegedly buried in the backyard at Graceland near his master's final resting place. Wow. Okay, so if I went to Graceland, I could go see the chimp's grave. Well, I don't know if it's marked. Otherwise, it wouldn't say allegedly buried. Oh, okay. Well, then, yeah, never mind. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I think I think this one's a fact. Think I, this one's a fact. For some reason, the notion of a chimp with Elvis feels familiar, especially on movie sets. That sounds like something I, for some reason, know. The box, the monkey box story, is incredibly suspicious. <laughs> but I can imagine dubious circumstances surrounding an aggressive chimp's death. I'm going to cautiously say fact. Cautiously saying fact. This is a fact. Yay, it's a fact. And you've got pictures to back it up. Oh. There he is in his little human-like clothes. Yep. With Elvis Presley. To to be fair, though, uh, counterpoint. Are there really clothes that aren't human-like? Humans are the only animals that wear them, generally speaking. Uh. But he's got little pants and a little shirt. Like, it's a two-part outfit. That's kind of part of the charm of it. Adorable. Yeah. But I just think it's interesting that two major artists both have had chimpanzees and both of which needed the spinet mystery department to come in and help figure out what happened. Yeah, that's very (laughs) surprising. If I had a nickel for every time one of our artists had a pet chimpanzee. With mysterious circumstances. (laughs) Yeah, I'd have two nickels, which isn't a lot, but it's weird that it happened twice. Yes. Elvis was born to be a musician, but he also had a career you might not know about. Interesting. I know about his music career. I know before he was a musician, he was, in fact, a truck driver yeah what other jobs did he do he was a law enforcement officer in real life not just in a movie correct in a technical sense i mean he was a part of the military is this with that no no just separate when was he a law enforcement officer like police his whole life his whole life what are you talking about he liked to illegally impersonate police officers well that's not a job (laughs) and also that's he you said he was a law enforcement officer no yeah he felt he was if if you i feel like you can't impersonate a law enforcement officer if you are one well he was just being a law enforcement officer other people would call it impersonating but that doesn't mean he would really pushing it here (laughs) impersonates police his whole life yeah (laughs) one of his favorite things to do was to go out in his car and find people who were speeding and then pull out like one of those car top siren light things put it on the top of his car pull them over and then get out go up give them a stern talking to for speeding and then instead of giving them a ticket give them a signed autograph and send them on their way no way what (laughs) did he do this before he was famous too that'd be really funny it has this has the same vibes 
as that Key and Peele sketch where there's a magician police officer and he pulls people over only to show them magic tricks and offer them tickets to his magic show. <laughs> like, this is just promo work. He's just out here selling himself. Did he ever get confronted by actual police? Because this is obviously not a legal thing. I don't know. <laughs> okay. I honestly don't know. But yeah, he would literally, he'd pop a police siren up on his car, don one of many fake badges that he had accumulated over the years. What? How? Wait, whoa. Speeders. How do you accumulate fake badges? I don't know. He had a big fascination with guns and badges and police uniforms. Oh, that seems true. That seems true. There was a shot in the movie where he had a lot of guns and badges, and that's the only thing I'm basing this off of. (laughs) He said that if he hadn't been a musician, he would have been a police officer, but that God wanted him to sing. That sounds true, too. I feel like that's a quote I've heard, but that doesn't mean he's impersonated cops. (laughs) (laughs) When did he stop doing this? Did he ever stop doing this? Uh, I don't know. I I feel like this isn't the kind of thing you stop doing unless you get in trouble. Well, I don't know. I'm just having a hard time picturing late-in-life Elvis pulling this off. Yeah, I'm sure as he got older, he probably did it less no way i think i'm gonna say this one's a spin i think this is a spin i think he did say the bit about wanting to be a police officer if he never sang and the guns and badges fascination seems legitimate i don't think he was out here faking it and pulling people over for autographs otherwise i don't know wouldn't more people talk about the time that elvis pulled them over wouldn't that be like out and about i feel like that'd be a little more common knowledge than it apparently isn't i think i'm saying spin you're saying spin yep this is a fact. Oh, shoot. What? <laughs> Elvis, what? <laughs> well, the thing you like to do. Priscilla wrote about it in her book, Elvis, by the Presleys. Wow. I'm a little shocked. Nobody ever stopped him or said anything to him about it. I can't believe it. Yeah. Caught in a speed trap. <laughs> That's funny. I'm just making suspicious mind jokes. <laughs> All right. For fact number three, let's see here. Let's do this one. He was a law enforcement officer. You shut your mouth. <laughs> so obviously not the same fact. No. Is this one in a movie? No. Okay. Is this one him pulling people over illegitimately again? No. Okay. I mean, what is this? Is this a jailhouse rock joke? I don't know. What's the deal? <laughs> he was a police captain. A police captain. Like, really? Yeah. Like, of the actual police somewhere? Oh, uh, in a way. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> See? What's what's the way? It was an honorary title. Honorary <laughs> police captain. In where? Memphis or Tupelo or? Denver. Denver? Why? That's so far away from everything. Does he have any connections to Denver? As far as I know, I mean, I don't know if he even spent any significant time in the city other than maybe a tour. He was good friends with Deputy Chief Robert Cantwell. What can he do well? (laughs) Okay, how does he get to be best friends with a police chief from a city several states away? Good question. I actually have some information on that. Cantwell first got to know Elvis Presley in 1970 while working as a guard in a hotel the night Presley played the Denver Coliseum. Okay, that makes sense. Good sense, actually. It was a funny little thing because he didn't believe that Elvis was really Elvis. Oh, he thought the Elvis impersonators got a head start. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he said when Presley emerged from an elevator, he wasn't sure it was him, so he forced him to show identification. It's an Elvis Vader when he's on it. (laughs) So he, he IDs Elvis. Elvis goes, it's me. And he goes, oh my gosh, let's be best friends. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. (laughs) Awesome. Wow. If only it were that easy. Yeah. Cantwell said he was a superstar on stage and a super friend off the stage. Elvis even gave him a car. Oh, gosh. So they obviously kept in touch and got along and stayed friends. When did he do this police chief thing? Uh, I believe after his death. Oh, I was going to say, if he did it while he was still alive, that makes his (laughs) pulling people people over over a little more legitimate. (laughs) Yeah. Imagine just cruising down, I don't know, I-40 through Memphis 
this, and all of a sudden, the honorary police chief of Denver, Colorado, pulls you over, signs an autograph, yeah. and leaves. Okay, posthumous, that makes sense. I believe it. Cantwell's actually one of the people who supposedly saw Presley's dead body. Oh, wow. That upon hearing of Presley's death, he went to Graceland with his police partner and stood by the casket and he touched Presley's body and said that he foresaw that rumors would emerge about whether Presley had really died. He wanted to touch him so that someday when somebody's going to say something, I'm going to say, yeah, I touched him. I know he was cold. Yeah. Oh, that is morbid. And I guess we didn't even talk about all the Elvis lived conspiracy theories. Mm-hmm. People talked about him being on an island somewhere for a long time. I don't know why. It's just a whole mess. Honestly, I believe this. Fact. Yeah. Like another fact. Especially if he wanted to be a police officer so badly, what a nice gesture it would be to finally like give him that honorary title posthumously. This is a fact. Oh, oh, I thought you were going to say spin and I was a little worried. <laughs> wow. Oh, man. I wish that was just, that would have been awesome. That's, no, but it's a better fact. That's great. It's pretty good. It is. And like that's a feel good fact. Yeah. Now, just going to put it out here right away because I already know what you're about to do. Uh huh. I hate you. Uh huh. Please don't. Uh huh. Tell me your last fact. Oh, my last fact. He was a law enforcement officer. Yep. yep. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so we, we've twice proven that the statement could be factual. I mean, you're really just hammering at home this week, aren't we? Just in case there was any doubt. Elvis was a law enforcement officer, for real, in real life. Uh -huh. What's the catch? Well, we talked about his love of collecting badges yeah, and how he became friends with a lot of different law enforcement officers, and that's kind of how he collected his badges, was getting them from various police departments he befriended. That does make sense. And then you mentioned in your rundown how he met President Nixon. I did. It would be President Richard Nixon who would uh, give him the ultimate law enforcement badge that he would receive in his lifetime. Yeah. What was that? It was one of Nixon's big wars that he was fighting vietnam yes well not a real one. Oh, what not a real nixon <laughs> war one of, the, one of the wars that was kind of started in his day that was like more of a metaphorical war a metaphorical war right so you're probably referring to the war on drugs i sure am <laughs> not vietnam <laughs> you say what <laughs> what was richard nixon's war come on whoops <laughs> all right the war on drugs uh -huh. and so uh, richard nixon presented him with a badge from the bureau of narcotics and dangerous drugs interesting is, does that make him a law enforcement officer? Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, sure. He's now got a badge that says he's part of the Bureau of Narcotics. A part of? I don't know. Okay. Mm. Okay. Okay. I'll play along just because I know you really, really, really wanted to say this three times. <laughs> what did he earn this badge for? I mean, I, not to put it too bluntly, but Elvis is a pretty heavy drug user at some points in his life. Yeah. And I know Richard Nixon wasn't exactly the most clairvoyant of individuals, but surely this was like an open secret, right? People knew Elvis was doing drugs eventually. Yeah, he wrote Nixon a letter, which resulted in Nixon inviting him to the White House. It's like, here, have this badge. What's the letter say? I don't know. I'm sure you could find it. It says, give me a badge. Oh. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So what's what's Richard Nixon's general impression of Elvis? Apparently, uh, you know, liked him enough to give him the most ironic badge you could give him. I guess so. I believe the badge was originally intended for use as a prop in a film and was a symbol of the government's appreciation for Presley's cooperation in the fight against 
against drug abuse. Mm. You've got me in a position here. You're trying <laughs> you're trying not to lose an episode in 2023. Mm. A claim that you made for the first time just 7 days ago in the last episode. Mm-hmm. And I have the opportunity right now to just dash that to bits before the first month of the year is over. <laughs> so, with that in mind, I think you've done something rare yeah? and given me four facts. Four facts. Yeah, three of which are the same, but I do think this is true. You know, it's true. Yeah, lock it in and let me know how that perfect year is going. Oh, it's fine. <laughs> this is a true fact. Oh! And there's a picture of his badge. It is a real badge. And he's a special assistant, so I guess that is an officer. Yeah. Oh, wow. But don't worry. We're not done. Come again? Sorry? Oh, this is such a legend. I thought I'd have to come with one more fact for the Classic Four. Uh, <laughs> you're inflating the Classic Four. That's why I wasn't too worried yet, because there's still a chance. Sorry? What's there a chance for? Is, is it over? Yeah. Hang on. Bring out the math department. Well, according to what I'm looking at here, I've got three right out of five. I've got six facts. <laughs> okay. All right, fine. You play your little games. I got one more connection to Michael Jackson, you know. Michael Jackson was known for some weird pseudoscience methods, right? Yeah, we talked about some of his sleeping tanks and, and, yep, and whatnot, yep, yep. but that wasn't real. No, no, it wasn't. Either way, though, he was still known for stuff like that. Yeah. Well, and, you know, later in life, Elvis got a little on the chubbier side. He did. But that really bothered him, and he came up with a really interesting eating habit to try to lose weight. Did he? This doesn't sound problematic in the slightest. What did he do? He went on two very interesting diets. Okay, uh, what's the first one here? The first one is a diet consisting of nothing but jelly. Ew, what? <laughs> like preserves and fruit jelly? Jelly jelly? Right, but it was a very specific jelly. Okay. It was a jelly made out of bananas and black cherry soda. Oh, we do know Elvis was a banana lover. As per the Elvis Presley sandwich you can find many places that is peanut butter and bananas. Mm-hmm. So the jelly diet sounds not only ineffective, but proper disgusting. Mm-hmm. What's the second diet? The Sleeping Beauty diet. What's that one? It's where he'd have doctors place him in a medically induced coma no way oh no just so he didn't eat that's not really a a diet his body would live off itself to stay alive causing him to you know it would basically eat itself yikes starved himself to lose weight but he didn't have to experience the starvation because he'd be in a coma right and obviously neither of these worked no i don't like oh i think this is a spin i don't think this is true Elvis was a busy guy. I don't think he had the time to be comatose. Mm. Not that anybody really does, but... This is a fact. Oh, no. (laughs) Which means it all comes down to this final one. I don't like that that was a fact. What? This this one shouldn't even exist. Whatever you're about to say feels a little forced. I don't know what you're talking about. Okay. All right. What's your last alleged fact? Another eating-related one. Why? I don't know. Uh, Elvis was a bit of a germaphobe. All right. Okay. He would bring his own fork. Bring it everywhere? Yeah, whenever he'd eat somewhere. I don't know. As, like, not a super germaphobe myself, I would think having a fork be everywhere you've been, probably more likely to get dirtier. I don't know if it was the same fork, but he, like, just wouldn't use other people's silverware or, like, restaurant silverware. Yeah, but how'd he carry it around? Is it, like, in a box or... uh, He's surely not just pocketed it. I don't know. I don't know either. Did he have something against restaurant forks or other forks? It it was just... He hated eating outside of his own home. No, 
Like, if he'd go over to somebody else's house to eat, he'd bring his own silverware. If he went to a restaurant, he didn't even like to drink out of their cups. And so, apparently, he would drink where the handle was because he knows that no one else would ever drink there. <laughs> like, turn mugs towards himself? Yeah. But he's a germaphobe. Uh, obviously, apparently, a pretty severe one. But he's, like, kissing all the fans on the lips. Yeah. I don't think that tracks. Hmm. That hmm to me, just let me analyze it. That sounded like a hmm that said, <laughs> yeah, I didn't really consider that before I told you this lie. <laughs> so <laughs> I think I'm going to say this is a spin. Are you sure you want to do that? Yeah. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> do I need to make a seventh fact? <laughs> no. Or an eighth? <laughs> or however many I need? No, regardless of the outcome here, I assure you, you need not make a seventh fact. <laughs> this is a true fact. Oh, wait, wait, what? <laughs> Hold on. How? It's actually well documented that like like he'd have people with wipes like whenever he'd shake hands and stuff. He was a big germaphobe and he didn't like to use other people's silverware or cups. But the kissing. Yeah. Uh, wow. I can't believe this. <laughs> yeah. This is another thing from Priscilla Presley that she talked about in one of her books or interviews or something. This was a total head game. You a thousand percent had all six of these ready to go. Sure did. <laughs> <laughs> I was afraid that the triple law enforcement fact, while funny, would lead to you successfully having a, a lead at the end of the Classic Four. So I came with backups just in case. I'm shocked. I, I'm stunned. Especially because <laughs> these last two facts were both like kind of similar in like being about eating. and. Uh-huh. I went in the order I went in on purpose. I'm a dastard. <laughs> and so once again, on another episode, we have gone 50-50. And therefore, my streak of not losing continues. Shut up. This is the worst. <laughs> I've never felt worse about the end of an episode of Factor Spin. <laughs> wow. Well, you go on now and think about what you've done. Oh, I'm going to go make myself a celebratory pumpernickel bread sandwich. You do that. Peanut butter and banana on pumpernickel bread. Oh, that's a good idea. That's what I'll do. And until next time, I leave you with a... Yeah! Oh. The mixtaper has left the building. Oh, man. Oh, it hurts. Man, he got you good. I started off with the first fact right, which hasn't happened since episode 78. Wow. I got the last two right. I was there. Well, you didn't get the last two. <laughs> yeah, okay. That was a whirlwind. Yeah, he got you. Yep. But you know what we've got? The rest of the show to do. Some album art to talk about. Which, yeah, is the next part of what I said. So, let's talk about the album cover. Nah. Once again, we've got ourselves a 1950s early album era album cover. So it's not super artsy. Which means it's just him looking at the camera. <laughs> well, him playing a guitar, all fancy schmancy. Oh, well, fair enough. Yeah. Actually, it's a pretty iconic image. And an important one. People have postulated that Elvis looking so cool on this album cover and using the guitar the way that he does, both on TV and on this album, where he kind of makes it the focal point of the songs over the usual piano style of the day. People say that's really what helped popularize the instrument in the genre of rock and roll overall and made it the primary instrument for rock music moving forward. So it's a pretty iconic image, and Elvis is a pretty iconic guitarist just for what he's done for the instrument in popular music. The picture on the album cover 
was taken by William Red Robertson in Tampa, Florida in 1955. And the text on the side, you know, is pink and green. It says Elvis down the left and Presley across the bottom. Rolling Stone decided that this was number 40 on their ranking of the 100 greatest album covers of all time. And its style with the black and white picture and the text the way that it's laid out has been emulated by bands and other artists over time, including Chumbawamba, who we talked about on our bracket challenge, Big Audio Dynamite, and notably, The Clash's London Calling, which I did not put together until I saw that in writing somewhere. And I went, it's the same. It really is. That's an album you hear soon, sometime. Oh. (laughs) But that's the album art. I suppose we should get into the songs. Yes, with one of his most famous. Yes. Really? Yeah. The album, overall, contains a good mix of songs, but they are all covers or written by outside songwriters. Elvis was not, at this point, known for his songwriting ability. But these are all Elvis staples. Some of these he'd already been performing live for more than a year. And he kicks off the album with Blue Suede Shoes. A great one. This is a quick listen. Not the song, but the album in general is a quick listen. Oh, yeah, it goes. It goes by fast. It's a bunch of short tracks. Once again, just the way it was in the 50s. Every song is like just barely scratching the surface of two minutes. Not a one of them even breaks the three minute mark. Which is nice. It is. But Blue Suede Shoes, iconic. It's an iconic song. Well, it's one for the money, two for the show. Three to get ready now. Go, cat, go. Boom, boom. That's the one. Iconic intro, really. I mean, notable opening. That one for the money, two for the show phrase is probably a reference to horse racing. And the phrase itself actually predates the song by about 120 years. Yeah, I mean, I've heard the phrase before. You know, it's a, I feel like a popular enough phrase. I feel like it's been in other pop culture things, too. Definitely it has. It's come up quite a bit. Yeah. The song was written by fellow Sun Records artist Carl Perkins, and it was going to be one of Elvis's singles, but executives at the record labels decided that they wanted to make sure Perkins would have success with it. So they held back Elvis's version, and they kept it just for the album, which is interesting. That kind of collaboration is not something you see every day. Yeah. There are a couple theories about the inspiration for Blue Suede shoes i don't know if you know any of them one popular theory is that johnny cash gave carl perkins the idea as he was describing a military officer that wore blue suede shoes while a different theory claims that perkins got the idea on his own by watching a couple in the audience at one of his shows he watched the guy berate some girl that he was with for stepping on and scuffing his shoes ergo don't you step on my blue suede shoes yeah i i I didn't know that either of those yeah suede shoes were actually like way in at the time they were super cool valuable and obviously very hard to take care of which is why he's so protective of them songs peppy it's upbeat and uh I don't know. I feel like most of the songs on this album, when you look at them musically, you're going to see right through Elvis, kind of, and you'll get just to the influences that built this record. You'll hear the rockabilly sound. You'll hear the 12-bar blues. You'll hear the R&B. Like, everything will be super evident because you're so familiar with songs that this stuff inspired. It'll feel familiar all the way through, which is pretty interesting. And one of those songs that felt really familiar, despite me never having heard it before I listened to the album, is track two, I'm Counting On You. Ah, yes. I like that guitar intro. Yeah, it's very nice. 
And again, see, that's part of what makes the guitar so popular in rock, stuff like that. This is the quintessential mid-50s ballad. The song was written by Don Robertson, and in this case, Elvis was indeed the first person to release it. Is this one that you knew beforehand? Obviously, Blue Suede Shoes. I didn't even have to ask. Oh, yeah. Oh, you knew this one too? Oh, I know this whole album. You knew this whole album. Oh, you're a bigger Elvis fan than I thought. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't think I've ever listened to the whole album like purposely like I did for this episode, but I, I doubt there's a single song on this I hadn't heard. I'm pretty sure I recognize them all. Interesting. I've just, from time to time, put on a giant Elvis playlist that has like every song he's ever done. Well, these are indeed part of that. <laughs> That's kind of a rarity for you. No yeah <laughs> i mean it's probably less of a rarity than maybe you think it is it's just that for the artists we cover yeah it's just the artists you force me to do on this podcast aren't the ones that i've done that with understandable <laughs> barry manilow was one that i've like listened to a lot of his music oh yeah right and that was one i picked and billy joel i know pretty much all of billy joel's music right <laughs> who did we do that i was shocked that i knew pretty much the entire album kiss kiss yeah i was like oh man i know like all of these and sometimes i just don't realize i know the song because i don't know its name i'm really bad at just like hearing a song and be like i like this song and never knowing what it's called or who sings it yeah i've done that on occasion but yes for the podcast it's a rarity yes what i love about i'm counting on you is it's the first real chance we get to see elvis hang out in his more seldom seen kind of lesser remembered upper register some of these melodies really take him up into the stratosphere mm-hmm. and that's just not what he's known for he's known for the deep voice you know and the, the deep voice and the mumbly lyrics yeah and i'm counting on you really doesn't have either of those things so it's it's different kind of elvis track and i like it it's short though one of the shortest on the album only really a verse and a couple choruses but it's solid now what do you think of the next track oh i like it a lot it's a ray charles cover and it's different mm-hmm. it's kind of you know you talk about the mumbly lyrics and stuff one thing you hear on this one is elvis does this thing where he'll like hit a note and then swallow it you know kind of in the same way he gets like the ah uh-huh sound he just hits it and backs off it's a really interesting flex of his dynamic control and he does that left and right over i got a woman it's interesting to hear and captivating like that's kind of one of his hallmarks the song itself is a little more upbeat but it's a precursor to modern soul music and it's inspired by gospel and r&b kind of blended together all in one rolling stone deemed it the 239th greatest song of all time wow uh-huh that's a that's a massive honor but while this song was a big hit for ray charles and a great song overall it really never was a huge charting hit for elvis no it wasn't super popular uh, amongst the fans but boy did he love it he played it live all the time kind of the opposite of what happened with rem where the fans all wanted a song and they said no we hate it the fans were all like eh and elvis was like all right i'm doing i got a woman again <laughs> one more time so you might say since elvis loved that song so much and all the fans didn't it was a bit of a one-sided love affair oh yeah it was <laughs> it was one-sided love affair is the next track on the album written by bill campbell but once again debuted by the king himself he actually called this one his favorite song on the album way back in 1956 really yeah i don't know how long that sentiment stayed with him and this one's interesting because it is one of the few songs on the album that's primarily keyboard and piano my favorite part about this song is when he busts into the chorus and how bouncy his voice gets the way he sings well fair exchange bears no robbery it's like like as he's doing it it's so funny yeah it just cracks me up every time i hear it (laughs) yes it is so funny and like it's just like what are you doing that's the personality and charm 
he gave to all his music that makes it so memorable. Yeah, and then just I'm just imagining that with a bunch of hip thrusting and leg shaking, and I'm like, and you can see why people were melting. <laughs> no wonder people wanted to put him in jail. Yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot to take in, especially. I mean, you and I, our musical palette is so adjusted beyond where this would upset it. But like, imagine if all you grew up listening to was like waltzes, you know, and like I don't know, doo wop and big band and rhapsody like, in blue. <laughs> yeah, and like the Charleston made you clutch your pearls or something. Like yeah. this is already a far cry from all of that. I can't imagine what it would have been like to have this be the forefront of new music. But I like it. It's a fun song. Yeah, would you say you love it? Yeah, but the feeling is mutual. This song finally does give us the 12-bar blues with, like, all the way release. We finally make it to the end of the sequence. Yeah. And lyrically... I like it a lot. He describes a relationship where he's not going to put in all the effort and all the work. So he's kind of laying down the line, putting in an ultimatum. I just like that sentiment, that adamant. You're not getting any one-sided affection from me. You got to put in and pull your weight. It's nice. I love it. Yeah? Yeah. Why do you love it? Well, I love it because. Oh. I like the I love it because of the whistle that starts off I love you because. Yeah, whistling on a recording is risky and hard to do. Yeah. But he does start I love you because track 5 off with a nice whistle. People can't whistle like they used to. I think that's yeah. a bit of a lost art for most people. I love you because is an older track. It was first recorded by Leon Payne in 1949. Other covers of this song would include one by Johnny Cash. He did it a little later. His version would hit number 20 on the Billboard Country Charts, but Elvis's once again did not. Mm. It's a sweet song and actually a breath of fresh air after the romp and tumble of I've Got a Woman and One-Sided Love Affair. I Love You Because is a nice chance to breathe for a second. Yeah, as a ballad fan, I like this song. Me too. This song is actually unique to the record so far in that it doesn't have a chorus. It's that verse, verse, verse structure, and the only thing it's kind of got to tie us down is that little refrain at the end of the verses. I love you because you're you. It's simple, doesn't beat around the bush. I think it's solid for a 1956 lyric. It's a nice light little twist, you know, a play on loving you because of this and this and this. Because it's kind of a cop-out for answering the question, isn't it? If you think about it. Yeah. You know, it's an even bigger cop-out, though. (laughs) Yeah? Does it take away the because you're you and just love you just because? Yeah, just because. (laughs) Just because. I thought the same thing, and I think it's a ridiculous decision to put I love you because and just because (laughs) back-to-back. What are you doing? I don't know. There's a couple spots like that where they do something on this album. There's that one, and then a little later on where they put I'm going to sit right down and cry over you right next to I'll never let you go, which I was like, that's a nice little juxtaposition next to one another. It is. Really, that whole run, because they go from trying to get to you into I'm going to sit right down and cry over you into I'm never going to let you go. It's a nice little run of three titles. There's some interesting stuff here. And it's, again, different time, making singles. Yeah. It's not really meant to be some piece of art as a collection of songs. But it is kind of funny that he's like, I love you because, just just because. because. I know. Tutti Fruity. Well, Rudy, we're not... (laughs) Not yet. We'll talk about that in a minute. Oh. But just because there's another oldie that comes from 1929, the first recording of it was done by a southern folk duo called Nelstone's Hawaiians. Then interestingly, it was later recorded by an accordionist and a polka musician called Frankie Yankovic, who was known as America's Polka King in 1949. Wait, what? Yeah, Frankie <laughs> Frankie Yankovic, an accordionist, recorded this song. A- any relation to Weird Al? No. Quite. No, not at all. <laughs> no? I figured not. Yeah. 
If I had a nickel, I'll say it again. If I had a nickel for every polka playing accordion player named Yankovic we've talked about on this podcast. The polka king! I would once again have two nickels, which isn't a lot. Still weird that this also happened twice. But then, after Yankovic did it, Elvis put out this version, and later famous covers would be done by artists like Paul McCartney, the Peninsula Banjo Band, and Brian Setzer. Brian Setzer! Yes, he's the one. It's kind of a clever understatement, I think. I know we just talked about how it feels silly to go back to back with I love you because, but I think just because it's a pretty clever thing. He, he says, I'm only leaving you because, and then he lists a ton of grievances, some of which are, are pretty serious. Yeah, he's like, I got a nice list. He's like, don't worry, you know, it's just one or two little things. Here's the deal. <laughs> he gives this laundry list of all the stuff that's wrong. <laughs> you may not think you've been too bad to me, but yikes, try and see things from my perspective. But you have, you suck. Yeah, that just because becomes a little more apparent. But up next, we have what I think I would argue is probably the biggest song from the album. But I would also say... Bigger than Blue Suede Shoes. Well, that's what I'm getting to. I'd also say Blue Suede Shoes was a bigger hit for Elvis. Yeah. I think Tutti Frutti is the biggest song in general. Fair enough. Because this is the breakthrough hit of Little Richard, another really, really remarkable contemporary that I can't wait to talk about. Yeah. Little Richard, I've, I've put him on the album ranking list, and just great. I love Little Richard. Mojo Magazine ranked Tutti Frutti the number one record that changed the world. They said it represented... The the birth of rock and roll. Richard's version is also preserved in the Library of Congress, and Rolling Stone ranked it the number 43 greatest song of all time. So if you're keeping track, that's at least three songs on this album so far out of the first seven that are considered among the greatest songs of all time. According to legend, Little Richard wrote Tutti Frutti while he was working as a bus station janitor. His recording, I mean, was really iconic, and his initial draft of the lyrics was a little out there, really out there. Like, you couldn't put that on the radio probably today, even less so in 1950-something. So they brought in an outside lyricist, Dorothy Lebostri, to help him out. And you remember when I said back in the rundown, one of their goals for Elvis was to use him as a vehicle to get black music to white audiences? Well, bingo, this is that. Yeah, he sure did. He took the song, changed a couple of those edgier lyrics, and he really, really toned down the rowdy energy of the song. Little Richard does it, and I mean, the scale just is off the charts. 211, he rocks it. Elvis's version is like, okay, you know, I, I just can't get into it as much as I can the original. Mm. This song also has an iconic intro. The wop baba loom wop the wop bam boom Yeah, it does. That's really good. It is. That's an onomatopoeia for a little drum beat that Little Richard was thinking of in his head. Instead of drumming it on, you know, drums, he just decided to sing it. And now we have it today. Iconic and instantly recognizable. Tutti Frutti, oh Rudy. Hey, James. Yes. I just wanted to let you know I've been traveling over mountains. You've been traveling over mountains? Yeah, and even through the valleys, too. Wow. If you were doing that, it sounds like you'd have to be traveling night and day. Yeah, and running all the way. Why? Trying to get to you. Oh, thanks. That's nice. And by you, I mean the audience. I want to be here in time for the podcast. Oh, <laughs> you traveled over mountains <laughs> to get back to your computer so we can record? Yeah. I see. For the audience, not for you. No, I understand. There's a lot more of them. Anyway, if you couldn't tell audience, the next song, Trying to Get to You. Right. <laughs> Trying to Get to You is by Rose McCoy and Charles Singleton, and it was first recorded by the Eagles. No, not the Hotel California, Don Henley, Glen Fry Eagles. That's different. Aw. Yeah, and much later, might I add. No, <laughs> this Eagles was a vocal group from Washington, D.C. Later covers of the song come from the likes of Roy Orbison, Faith Hill, and more. 
Oh, but here's a fun fact. It was also reworked by Paul McCartney into a song called In Spite of All the Danger, which was the first song ever recorded by the Quarrymen, which is the Beatles before they were the Beatles. Whoa! Before Beatlemania! Yeah, or Beatle anything uh. <laughs> I like it. So, as far as Elvis's version goes, well, versions, I should say, Elvis recorded five different versions of the song. He was really trying to get to you. Yeah. Some of the versions made their way onto albums later on. Live albums, extended compilation albums. This version, though, the album version, Elvis actually plays the piano, which is a rarity, at least on this album. He does it some. Yeah, on this album, it's a rarity. In fact, this may be the only song that he plays the piano. I'm not sure who played it on One Side of Love Affair, but he definitely played it on this one. Very cool. So many of these songs, maybe it's just a product of his time, but I think a lot of these songs have the same kind of energy to them. That same shuffly kind of beat, that same almost frenzied tempo to them. I like it. It's very emblematic of the time and of Elvis and the kind of music he's trying to create and emulate. But it's just interesting to have a whole collection of songs where that's so densely concentrated. Well, let's talk about the next track. I'm going to sit right down and cry over you. Once again, more of that shuffly energy. I like to imagine that the you he's crying over is a glass of spilled milk. Oh, I thought you were going to say actually like you. But you want to think Elvis is crying over spilled milk? Yeah. That's the one thing you shouldn't cry over. Yeah. Yeah, but he's Elvis. He's going to tell him no. Lots of people before he broke out and made it big. <laughs> before he became a decorated uh, law enforcement officer three separate times. Rice decorated law enforcement officer. Uh, really worked his way up through the ranks. No, twice decorated once he just did it to himself. He decorated himself. He had plenty of badges he'd collected to decorate himself with. Yeah, fair. I'm going to sit right down and cry over you, not over spilled milk. Was written in 1953. The first recording was done by Roy Hamilton. The song became really notable both for this Elvis version and a Beatles recording that they played a lot in their early days. It's another no chorus song, so it's very frank, very to the point. Yeah, it's got a nice little interlude in it I like. I do too. That's the thing, I, I don't know. On the rare occasions where the music has the chance to give you an instrumental interlude, I think they really make the most of that and do it very well. I can't think of one that's lacking in any way. I don't know, I just like the song and the structure of it. I do too. I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna do that, I'm gonna do all these things, and if you leave, I'm gonna cry. It's a repetitive structure, but I don't think it ever gets old between how fast and short the song is and the little pivot in each verse. Kind of keeps it moving right through it. So is, so is the next song. Yeah, I'll Never Let You Go, Little Darling. It's a great little ballad. It is nice. It's just one that I've never... This doesn't stick with me very much. Yeah, but it goes by so fast. It does. It's a quick two and a half minutes. Honestly, it's towards the longer end of the songs for the album. Yeah, it is. Which is weird. But it flies by. It's kind of the opposite of the way a lot of these other songs are made. With the instrumental interludes and the big shuffly time. This one is way more laid back and sparse. It's a totally different style of song. And I think they nailed it. I'll Never Let You Go, Little Darling was first written by Jimmy Wakely and recorded by the singing cowboy who we've talked about before, Gene Autry. His version came out in 1941. I like the song, but I think I'll Never Let You Go, Little Darling has kind of some tone problems. It's only got two verses, and it's kind of weird because he's begging this girl to stay, but all the while he's, like, making her cry at the same time. I'm not quite sure what that is about. It's another one that the sound of his voice it's very glidey which is kind of not like him yeah you're right he holds back a lot which he doesn't often do mm -hmm. but i like it yeah and it's another song that really plays with this higher register instead of the low ringing notes that he's famous for 
Correct. Yeah. The back half of the album, well, mostly, I mean, that last track and the upcoming track, Blue Moon, is a little bit of a slump for me. Really? I think so. Blue Moon is another more popular one from the album. Oh, it is. I'm not talking about the song song. I don't know if I love Elvis's version. Gotcha. That happens a couple of times. Yeah. Well, Blue Moon is another one that's quite an oldie. It was written by Richard Rogers, the same Rogers of Rogers and Hammerstein, and Lauren's Hart in 1934 they wrote it as a commission piece for a movie called hollywood party which got released without the song in it long story short blue moon went through three different sets of lyrics before becoming the version we now know and love and it is a big hit huge hit that you've almost certainly heard before the list of who's who has covered this song a lot of people have covered blue moon yeah frank sinatra ella fitzgerald billy holiday ray stevens yep bob dylan bing crosby dean martin eric clapton rod stewart Cindy Lauper. I'm actually a pretty big fan of the Ray Stevens version. I bet you are. <laughs> Elvis's version of the song appears not only here on this debut record from the 50s, but also it's a part of the soundtrack to his 1964 movie, Viva Las Vegas. Yeah. And, I mean, while it's personally maybe not my taste, Elvis's version spent 17 weeks on the Billboard Top 100, peaking just under halfway up the charts at number 55. Blue Moon, it's a little bit slow and mumbly for my liking. It's, yeah. It's a really lethargic way to, like, we're winding down the album, and then Money Honey kind of just shocks us right back awake. It's like, hey, haven't left the building yet. <laughs> Elvis is just letting us know that he has not yet left the building. Right. Money Honey, I love. It's one of my favorite songs on this album, actually. And so I think it's a great concluding track. Oh, yeah, it's a good one. It leaves a good taste in your mouth when the album's done. And that guitar bit at the beginning, the blum boom it's like i feel like something that's used in other songs it is that's another like guitar rhythm that is popular for this style yeah welcome to the blues yeah yeah it's great um the song is by jesse stone and it was the very first single by clyde mcfadder and the drifters another one of the songs that made rolling stone's greatest of all time list money honey made it to number 252 really yeah famous covers of the song include jackson five little richard and 38 special which is i think the first time we've brought them up on this podcast is it yeah Yeah, i guess it probably is well i'm so caught up in them money honey is just a funny song it it goes through several different perspectives as we kind of try and figure out the situation with people who need money first we start with a guy who needs to pay for his rent he doesn't have the cash so the landlord says hey i need that money honey give me the money so this guy says oh crap what am i gonna do he calls up his girl and he says hey girlfriend i need the money honey and she says sorry i'm leaving you you're out of luck i'm moving on i'm going for somebody with more money honey it's great the use of this phrase in three or four different contexts is awesome it's an entertaining song but that brings us to the end of the album it sure does and the end of the album means the beginning of final spin oh it's always funny it never should be funny but it's always funny this is a hard album to score yeah yes it is because it's another one of those albums with massive historical significance and another album that is sublime in its heyday but since then a lot has come after it my scores are kind of calibrated towards things that are very different than this fair enough yeah it's just hard to tell some elements of it are timeless and enduring some elements of it have faded into not as good you know they've they've kind of lost a little bit of their luster over the last 50 (laughs) some years but music 
on this album is pretty strong. I like the blend he's got of rhythm and blues and soul music and gospel music. It's all kind of there and subtly on display in different capacities throughout this album. This was, I'll be honest, the first Elvis album I've ever listened to. Which is crazy to me. I know, I know. Over 600 albums on your spreadsheet and this is the first one that's Elvis. Mm -hmm. Okay, but again, he's before the album era. So I know, I admit, I need to do more. Watching the movie and doing this episode and just learning about him and even listening to the album months ago made it pretty clear that I really needed to do more. Yeah. But anyway, like I was saying, music, superb blend of influences. Some of the songs, though, are a little bit of a drag, not necessarily the most memorable or stick with you. I'm giving music a 78. I think that's a good balance. Lyrics are always the things that age the worst. I mean, yep. that's just the fact of life. That's the way it is. Some of these songs are, are pretty good and clever. I really like Money, Honey. I like some of the twists on on just because and i don't know we went over them all blue suede shoes is, is iconic whether it was inspired by johnny cash or some random couple either way it's pretty great and some of the songs eh, i'm a little more lukewarm on i'm giving lyrics a 75 instruments and production are pretty much the same throughout i hate to knock on production too much the album was made in 1955 and 6 so it's not like it's possible to have made a record that would still be produced as well as today the instrumentalists are great this original elvis tree over the moon and chet atkins is on this record you can't beat it i think it's a lot of fun to listen to and i think everybody plays their instruments pretty well i'm giving it a 78 78 okay overall vibe obviously is this album's strongest suit there's so much history packed in here think about when this album came out i feel like few people had any idea where this man's career trajectory was headed and that's amazing to think about i don't know i just can only imagine being there at the record store in 1956 picking up this album maybe you've heard heartbreak hotel on the radio i don't know you're just checking out this guy elvis presley for the first time and you hear this it would blow my mind this album i think resonates because of its historical significance to me so its overall vibe is benefiting greatly from that given an 86 86 all right as a non-writer he's not going to get the bonus point but his overall score is a 78.7 which puts it at this point in time it is number 473 on the ranking spreadsheet wow that's actually really low it is surprisingly low and i hate it but i'm also yeah like that's lower than i anticipated but not that much lower because i don't think this was the best elvis album that there is so you know well i also i wanted to go with the debut yeah i would have put this lower on your list but not this low this feels a little insultingly low it's just i (laughs) i think a lot of it is with age i think a lot of it just comes with different times because again it's cultural significance and its vibe are off the charts it's so fun to listen to and so emblematic of the music of this time it's just different i it's really always disappointing to rank an album like this as much as i love it and i also i went with the debut i know it's not his strongest album or his best necessarily but it does have a great hit in blue suede shoes yep and it shows us where elvis started we get tutti fruity onto the podcast yeah and elvis is a great artist to revisit like i said there's so much about his history and story we didn't even have the time to talk about and he's got another bajillion albums that we could pick another strong one from to come back to someday in the distant future i like it i do too what's your take my take is similar to yours that it's a great to see where elvis got to start it's got some great songs on it even though they're not necessarily his biggest hits outside of a couple yeah this one also i don't know you like usually like to guess where it's gonna go for me and it might not go as high as you think it would really big elvis fan here doesn't know where he's gonna put it 
big Elvis fan. No, I know where I'm going to put it. I just don't think you know. One. I think you would have instinctually thought it was probably getting a nine. No way. I don't think you should give this album a nine. I didn't say you think I should. I'm saying that's where you would have instinctually thought I would put it, being such a big Elvis fan. Well, maybe. <laughs> I think you'd put some of Elvis' greatest hits pretty high up in your nines. Yep. But not this album that is kind of a hodgepodge of bigger hits and almost flops for him. So what are you thinking? Now that I've already spilled the beans, it's probably lower. You're going to adjust, but... I think this will land. I think you're on a streak of sevens. I think this one's going to go in your sevens. Okay. This does indeed get a seven. Uh, and it goes... Hold on. So I got that part right. Let's see if I can figure out the placement. Okay. Top of the sevens. Top of the sevens. No. This goes above Jagged Little Pills. Really? But below Sour, Ladylike, and uh, Awaken My Love. Really? I'm... That actually surprises me. I will admit, I'm a little surprised that Childish Gambino is going to make the cut above Elvis for you. Just not above Elvis, but above this album. Okay, right, right. Yes. <laughs> wow. Worse than all the lonely, unlovable boogeymen. Uh, a lot of this is early Elvis. That just isn't that classic Elvis sound that a lot of his more that he's known for. You know, so oh. it's his earlier work. This is what screwed the Beach Boys too. You didn't like the Beach Boys because it wasn't their classic sound. Yeah, no, it's just, I want to give proper room for inevitably a future Elvis album. You know, our goal is to do every album ever eventually someday. So, you know, I want to make sure there's proper room because I think there is a two point difference between this and some of his other albums. Okay. Thinking ahead. You are thinking ahead all episode. Factor Spin was so contrived. This is so planned out. Sorry, that was the mixtaper. You're right. That wasn't you. But the the whole (laughs) Elvis this episode i I guess i've i've been thinking behind yeah as for a unit this one's gonna get seven ohs out of ten as it should and uh my top three in album order i get my full pick this time correct it is weird that we're doing this now but yeah go on yeah in album order blue suede shoes yep i'm counting on you two already i love you because a couple skips there yeah and honorable mention to Money Honey. Money Honey. That's it. I like it. As for my playlist pick, as the ballad guy, I'm going to pick I'm Counting on You. Okay. I'm Counting on You. That's a good pick. I got to give it to one for the money, two for the show, three to get ready, and go, cat, go. It's blue suede shoes from me. And we pick the two right in a row like we love to do. We haven't done that in a while. It's been a minute, but there was a big streak of us doing that. It's true. It's not a thing we do infrequently. You can find that Favorite Songs playlist, by the way, on YouTube and on Spotify. It's called Spin It Favorite Songs, the music behind the podcast. It's pretty good. Just so you know, I realized we talk about it a lot, but we've never really plugged it. So yeah. feel free to check it out. It's That's where it is. Go find it. Go listen to it. A lot of good music. It's good for road trips. It's great for road trips. and Put it on shuffle. Get a nice little blend of all different genres and yeah. some classics, some new stuff. Some- yeah, and it's honestly a good little pregame if you want to listen to an episode of the podcast, but you maybe don't have familiarity with the artist. Oh, but don't want to do the whole album. Yeah, you could just, you know, get a quick little micro dose of those two songs and see from there. Pop on in. Yeah. That's not a bad idea. No. But anyway, that's going to do it for this week. Stay tuned for more episodes from us in the coming weeks. Every Friday. Every Friday. Haven't missed one yet. You can find us on the web, on Twitter, at Spin It Pod, on Twitch, at Spin It Pod, and on Instagram, at Spin It Pod Official. We are also on Facebook, TikTok, I don't know, all the things. If you can dream it, we can get there and do it. You can also find <laughs> us on the web at www.spinitpod.com. That's the website. We've got all kinds of fun stuff there and more stuff coming all the time. Be sure to tell a friend and rate five stars and, and do all the things. 
And the most important thing is to keep spinning. Keep spinning. So apparently, he was such a big germaphobe, you know, to answer your kissing question. Yeah, I was really confused by that. After the performance, he'd go back into his dressing room, brush his teeth, gargle, and sanitize his lips. Wow. If the mixtaper had told me that, I would have believed it less. If I brought up that he kissed people, <laughs> and then the mixtaper said, yeah, he did, but then he did all that, I really, honestly, would have locked in spin so much faster. Fair enough. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> 